Do you guys like my Hawaiian shirt? I'm doing my best impression of Dean today. <laughs> Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts 10. That's going to be our scripture text for today. There's also a Bible feature in the Nova Community Church app. So I'm a millennial. Big shocker, I know. I'm not going to tell you exactly how old I am because I'm a little afraid that'll discredit me from being up here. Um, but I am a millennial, which means that I am a big fan of YouTube. That, is, that just goes with being a millennial, being a big fan of YouTube. We had dinner with friends last night. After I got home, I must have sat down and watched like two hours worth of videos. I don't know if that's sad or not, but regardless, it happened. To be fair, YouTube has everything. It's got everything from these really great, like, produced TV episodes all the way to cat videos. And who doesn't love a good cat video? They're cute. <laughs> you're wrong. Objectively, you're wrong, Andrew. <laughs> no, but there are, like, there is a type of YouTube video that I just can't really get into. It's a really popular type of video called vlogging. And for those of you who aren't familiar with vlogging, essentially what it is is somebody standing in front of a camera and talking about whatever the heck they want to talk about. It can be fashion, sports. Most of the time, it's their own personal lives. And therefore, it kind of becomes reality TV almost like, I, I don't care what a 17-year-old in Missouri thinks about the new Starbucks Frappuccino. It's just, it's not for me personally. I have nothing morally to say about it. It's just not for me. Every once in a while, I'll watch one of those videos, though, and every once in a while, they're pretty good. I came across a specific vlog video that I actually found kind of intriguing. Uh, it's from Will Smith, believe it or not. Um, he has his own vlog channel. I'm not going to show the video because he swears a little bit and you know, church. Um. <laughs> no, but in this video, it's just him, but he's recapping a conversation that he had with a friend. And in this conversation, they were arguing the differences between fault and responsibility. Fault and responsibility. Most of the time, these two things go together. Somebody makes a mess, it's their fault, therefore it's their responsibility to clean up after themselves. Somebody breaks a law, it's their fault, their responsibility to either pay a fine or do a little bit of jail time. But in this video, Will Smith argues that fault and responsibility don't necessarily go together all the time. A good example of this is any parents here who are uh, parents of a toddler. If your toddler is sitting at the kitchen table, they knock over their sippy cup off the table, lid pops off, apple juice goes everywhere, whatever it may be. Yes, you want to teach your kid to learn how to clean up after themselves. But regardless, even though it wasn't your fault that the mess was made, the responsibility ultimately comes on the parent to clean up after it. It's not that novel of a concept, but regardless, it got 
my mind working, and I started thinking about it in the context of our modern church. I think the modern evangelical church from a secular perspective is often seen as very exclusionist, maybe prudish or closed-minded. And I think for a lot of us individually, those labels are improperly placed on us as individuals. And so maybe it's not our fault. But nevertheless, I'm going to argue that it is still our responsibility to help change the perceptions of those around us. So that's where we're going to be heading with our time today. Uh, But first, we're going to jump into our text. Like I said, it is Acts 10, and it's a little bit of a lengthy text. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a chunk of the passage, explain the nuances of what's going on, read another chunk, so on and so forth. So we're going to start in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened. We're going to stop there for a moment. All right, so we are introduced to this guy, Cornelius. We're just going to take a brief moment to establish who exactly he was. So we are told that he is a centurion. And we can kind of extrapolate that he is a centurion in the Roman army, meaning he's Roman or a Gentile. As a centurion, he commanded roughly 100 people, and his salary was roughly 16 times more than the common foot soldier. But his men probably didn't really resent him for making that much more than they did because Cornelius had to earn his position. He wasn't some trust fund kid who was gifted this position by his dad. Rather, he had to rise through the ranks. And in doing so, he probably earned the respect of the men he was commanding. But not only that, we are told later in this passage that he gained the respect of the Hebrew people as well. And this is significant. The Roman Empire was ruling over Israel at this time, and therefore tensions between the Jewish people and Romans, especially soldiers, were very, very high. So the fact that Cornelius was able to gain the respect of the Hebrew people as well is significant. So we're talking about a guy, pretty upstanding individual with significant wealth, military status, and good social status, 
And we're also told that he is a God-fearing man. Now, for us in our modern context, when we hear that somebody is a God-fearing person, we probably jump to, oh, they're saved. They're in the faith family. Not necessarily true when it came to ancient Israel. You see, the term God-fear was designated for specifically a Gentile. A Gentile who, yes, did worship and pray to the God of Israel. But in the Old Testament, God had established a set of laws that set the people of Israel apart from the rest of the world, making them holy as God's people. Therefore, to fully convert to the Jewish faith, one not only did so by um, pure faith, but also through cultural conversion as well. They needed to become Jewish first. So while Cornelius worshipped and prayed to the God of Israel, he still very much was a Gentile, still very much Roman. So this is who we are talking about today, a man with high uh, upstanding, what am I getting at, Um, high place in society, and he is also a God-fearing man. And he receives a vision from God. An angel tells him to go find Peter in a nearby town. And so he gathers together some of his men and sends them to find Peter. And so we're going to pick up the text again in verse 9. We're going to see what Peter is up to in the midst of this. Starting in verse 9, going to verse 23. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. All right, so Peter too, just like Cornelius, receives a vision, but Peter's is vastly different. 
In Peter's vision, a large sheet is laid down before him and it is filled with unclean or impure animals. And I'm sure the majority of us are at least somewhat familiar with Jewish dietary law. But there was a law established by God in the Old Testament that said certain animals were unclean or not okay to eat. Regardless, God tells Peter in this vision, Peter, you're hungry. Get up and kill one of these animals and eat it. And Peter's like, no way. I'm not going to eat one of these animals. I've never eaten anything unclean before. And upon reading this for the first time, it seems like kind of a benign thing to kind of plant your flag in. Like, this is the line I'm drawing when it comes to obeying God, right? Seems strange. It seems like a weird place to be drawing that line. But we have to understand the context in which this is coming from. So like I said, God established certain laws that set the Jewish people apart as God's holy people. Jewish dietary law was a cornerstone of that. And so there was no such thing as a quote-unquote cheat day. There were, nobody was sneaking off to the refrigerator in the middle of the night to sneak like a little snack of bacon or something like that. It did not happen. To give you a more serious example of what I'm talking about, in roughly 150 BC, the nation of Israel was conquered by the Seleucid Empire, and the leaders of the Seleucid Empire wanted to strip the Jewish people of everything that made them culturally Jewish. And so they tried to force the leaders of Israel to eat unclean animals or be put to death. And the majority of them chose death rather than simply eating an unclean animal. So this is the history, the context in which Peter is refusing God in this way. He wasn't necessarily right to refuse God, but maybe it's a little more understandable. So God and Peter go back and forth three separate times, and the sheet is raised back up into the heavens, and Peter is left to think, what just happened? What was that? What did that mean? And the meaning of this vision is both literal and figurative. Literal in the sense that God is showing Peter dietary law is not necessary anymore. Literal in that way. But it's meant to be extended to all the laws that made somebody culturally Jewish. He could still totally follow these laws, but they were not necessary to come to God anymore. The moral laws were still very much intact, like do not kill, do not steal. But these cultural laws that set the nation of Israel as God's chosen people were not necessary to come to God anymore. And in doing so, God is trying to show Peter that anybody from any nation or any context can come to God as they are if they put their faith in him. And here's the deal. Peter kind of picks up on this, content, on this concept rather quickly. 
when Cornelius' men arrive to the home that Peter is staying at, Peter invites them inside to be his guest. There was another law in ancient Israel that said a Jewish person would never allow a Gentile into their home. So the fact that Peter's inviting them in kind of shows the gears are at least starting to turn a little bit. So we got Peter and we got Cornelius' men and they meet up. And now they're about to go back to Cornelius himself. And that's where we're going to pick up the text for one last time, starting at the end of verse 23. We're going to go to verse 34. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met, met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with Peter, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. It's clear at this point that Peter gets it. Up until this point, he had a... Jewish framework of thinking. God did not save Gentiles as Gentiles. They needed to become Jewish first. But through the new covenant of Christ, he learns that Gentiles may come to Christ not as Jews first, but as Gentiles as they are. So this is a text that gets preached on often. And there's a, there's a key nuance that I want to touch on before we move on. Sometimes this text gets preached on as, now God is for all people. And that's not necessarily true because God has always been for all people. Just to come to him, you needed to convert fully to Judaism, both in faith and in a cultural context. Good examples of this in the Old Testament are uh, Ruth or Rahab. You can go and check them out. So, there I found two major themes that are at play in this text. The first theme is you no longer 
have to become Jewish to come to God. And I think we got that down. You want to know how I know? Because I think, I'm pretty sure the majority of us here are not Jewish. And so that's pretty important to us. But it's also this idea that you can come to God as you are. I think that's something that we're very familiar with in our modern evangelical context. It's at the core of the gospel. You are not saved by works, what you do, rather by faith and faith alone. It's also these stories that we love the most. It's the prostitutes, it's the drug dealers, the liars, the cheaters, the stealers, who reach a low point in their life, and in this low point, they recognize their need for a Savior and turn to God, and their lives are changed forever. This idea that you can come to God in whatever context or culture you are, that's something that, honestly, we're, we probably don't need to hash out too terribly much. And so, there is another theme at play in this passage that I'd like to spend a little more time on. Second theme that I found in this passage is God breaking down cultural exclusiveness. God breaking down cultural exclusiveness. As I mentioned earlier, there was a bit of a rift between Romans and the Jewish people, but honestly it could have been extended from a rift between Jewish people and Gentiles as a whole. There was a sense that Gentiles weren't necessarily to be trusted. The Jewish people weren't seeking out Gentiles to bring them into God's family. It was very much, we are God's chosen people, and then there are Gentiles. And to be fair, to be fair, they had good reason to be apprehensive of other nations. They were imprisoned for about 500 years and then subsequently conquered by multiple nations following that. So it's at least understandable why they would be apprehensive, but nevertheless, the exclusivity that pervaded in this culture wasn't necessarily correct. As I mentioned in the beginning of our time together, I think in our modern context, the Christian church is often seen as exclusionist, exclusive, prudish, closed-minded. And maybe that's our fault sometimes. Maybe. I'm not going to get into the details of it, but when I talk with my non-Christian friends or when I read up or listen to interviews with non-Christian people, there's this sense that to go to church or to be a part of the Christian family, you have to look a certain way, be behaving a certain way. You can't go there. You can't listen to this type of music. You can't watch that type of movie. There was a phrase that was told to me a few years ago that has haunted me since then. And so I'm going to share it with you guys now so you can be haunted by it as well. <laughs> Just kidding. 
but not really. I think Christians today are known more for what we are against rather than what we are for. You can go to that next slide. I think Christians today are known more for what we are against rather than what we are for. And that's a problem. It's a problem because it go, the core of the gospel is not a list of what you can and cannot do. There's nuance there, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But the core of the gospel, the nitty-gritty of it, is that God loves all people. So much so that he wants everybody to be in relationship with him. And so he sent his son, who died a brutal human death, was resurrected from the dead, and therefore conquered the barrier that separates God and us, our sin. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40 states, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love other people. This is what we are for as Christians at the bare base of it. And it's unfortunate because I think in some Christians' lives, and at times, all of our lives, these two things become secondary. And when that happens, we become known more for what we are against rather than what we are for. And I don't want anybody to walk out here today, or walk from here today, thinking like, oh, Garrett said as long as we love God and love other people, we can do what we want, and it's cool. Everybody else can just do what they want as well. Everything's cool. Are we against certain things as Christians? Yes. Is there a set of things that we should not be doing, saying, or consuming? Yes, of course. But when loving God and loving other people become secondary, I think we run into problems. It's at least good food for thought. But here's where it gets even trickier. I believe that the majority of us here today in, in this building are actually very warm, welcoming people who in general do a good job of loving other people, whether they are Christian or non-Christian. None of us are perfect, but in general. So what do we do when certain labels get attached to us because we're Christian? That because you're a Christian, therefore, you're exclusionist. Because you're a Christian, you're a prude. Or that you're close-minded. And maybe it's not your fault because individually Christians come in all different shapes and sizes. So maybe for you individually it's been a challenge because there's this purveying idea that Christianity 
promotes these things, and you know that not to be true about yourself. So what are you to do? Maybe it's not your fault. As I said in the beginning of our time, I don't think that fault and responsibility necessarily need to go together at all times. I see there being a few options that we can have when certain labels or stereotypes are placed on us. One, we can walk away from our faith. The pressure gets to us. I don't really recommend that one. We can pretend forever that we aren't Christians around our non-Christian friends. I don't recommend that either. We can wallow around and complain that it's not fair, but do nothing. I don't recommend that either. Or we can take the responsibility into our own hands and try and change the perspective of the people around us. It's actually what the whole open campaign is kind of based on, isn't it? For those of you who may be new uh, or fairly new to Nova, we are in the midst of a campaign where we are raising money to renovate our property, and we're not doing it so that we ourselves can have nice things, but we, one, want to be a gift to the community and be more open and welcome to the community around us. You see, a few, maybe like a year and a half ago, we had a design team come and visit Nova on a Sunday morning. And during their time afterwards, they told us, you guys are such a warm, welcoming, loving community. We had a great time. Your property doesn't reflect that, though. You see, we're very separated from the main street. And our front doors face not even the main street. Our playground is tucked away in the corner. And so, maybe it's, it wasn't necessarily our fault that these perceptions were placed on us. We are generally a very warm, welcoming people. It's not our fault. But nevertheless, we took the responsibility on ourselves to change that. We built a new playground. It gets used by the community all the time throughout the week. It's almost like a public park. We're going to change our entrance facing the main street. We want to be a gift to the community and be open, open and welcome. So for us, when labels and stereotypes are placed on us, how do we take responsibility into our own hands, even when it may not be our fault? Is it this big, grandiose gesture that we do? Not necessarily. I think it's actually more of a grassroots movement, if you will. There's a really great stand-up comedian named Jim Gaffigan, and I watched an interview with him recently on YouTube. And in this interview, the interviewer asked him, if you could give one piece of advice to any aspiring stand-ups, what would it be? And his answer was simple. Yet it was very profound. 
be undeniable. Be so good at what you do that in this case, even if you're not somebody's cup of tea, you can, it is undeniable that you are funny. So how do we apply that to ourselves? Well, if we want to change the narrative to being known for what we are for rather than what we are against, this would be my charge to you guys. It is to be undeniable in how you love God and how you love other people. Go the extra mile for your neighbor. Go above and beyond for the people around you, Christian or non-Christian, so that even if you do have ideological differences with somebody, there is no denying that you love God and love other people. You're not going to be perfect at it, but we can at least strive for it. Be undeniable. I'm going to share a brief story just to close out our time. Very, very brief. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, everybody. Um, I'm going to share a brief story about my dad. So growing up, my family um, and I moved around a whole lot. But at one point, we uh, came upon a house that had a pretty decent-sized property attached to it, maybe like half acre to three-quarters of an acre. Not huge, but good size. And it required a lot of yard work. So on Saturdays, on the first half of every Saturday, me and my dad would wake up and we would go take care of what needed to be taken care of. It was actually kind of fun. I actually grew to like it a little bit. It wasn't too terrible. But towards the end of when we were wrapping things up, pretty consistently my dad would notice the neighbor's lawn was a little long. That maybe there were leaves in their gutter, a certain area needed to be weeded, and without being prompted, without needing any praise or validation, he would go over and take care of their yard. And I wasn't necessarily happy about it because I wanted to be done. (laughs) But it was good. And then he'd go to the other neighbor's yard on the other side of the house, and maybe he would notice that I don't know, something need, and this neighbor across the street had a lot of leaves in their gutter. He'd take care of it for them. Loving your neighbor well doesn't have to be a big, grandiose gesture. If you are somebody who knows my dad well, he's been here every now and then, you would know, if you know him well, that his love for God is undeniable. It is very much at the core of who he is, and it is undeniable. And from that, his love for people and caring for others naturally flows. And in doing so, his love for other people is undeniable as well. So one last time. If we want to start changing the narrative in the people, in the perception of those we come in contact with, be undeniable in how you love God and how you love your neighbor.
Amen.